Well, we're still in Daniel, and we'll be for a while, I think. One more sermon on Nebuchadnezzar. I frankly am getting a little tired of Nebuchadnezzar because the more I learn about him, and I study a little more each week, you know, I get the basics down and I add a little bit. And um, he was just an incredible individual, probably the most powerful king on earth up until his time, and maybe since, relatively speaking, because neither the Greeks, the Romans, nor the Persians had the empire, especially the building that um, Nebuchadnezzar had there in Babylon. But an unbelievable fellow in so many ways. And one more time, we're going to see something about his life that's bizarre. I remember the first time I ever, I, I grew up reading the Bible and I never caught this story for some reason. I guess the lion's den and the fiery furnace and some of that other stuff in Daniel was more exciting. But, but uh, I remember uh, maybe 35 or 40 years ago hearing a lecture on this. And I thought, what? What's going on there? For some reason, it, I'd never caught So let's just read somewhat of the text, and then we'll tell the story and see what we can glean from it. Uh, chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures for generation, from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fantasies and the visions of my head alarmed me. And then verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said, Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass and the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives to it whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. And then down to verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is this not the great Babylon which I have built by my might, power as a, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. And you shall be made like to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men. He ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven. His hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like the bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heavens, 
My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. Still, more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. Here's the whole point of the story. It's the very last sentence. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, his ways are just, And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. We have seen in these uh, episodes, especially chapter 2 and again this one, uh, the theological education of King Nebuchadnezzar. And it's a mixed bag. There are things that are demonstrably true to him because they've been demonstrated. He has come to believe in special revelation as Daniel interpreted the first dream and told him what the dream was. That was a dream that was quite favorable to the king. It was pretty good news how great he was going to be and then things after him would come to pass. But by and large, he would maintain this fabulous greatness as the great king of the earth of those days. This particular dream was different. Some time had passed. Nebuchadnezzar had enjoyed a whole lot more of his uh, building and his exploits. He had enjoyed his kingship. Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, was known as a builder, not necessarily as a warrior, although he was a vicious warrior, but he he built fabulous um, things, as we'll see in just a second in the text. And here in this, we have three occasions where Nebuchadnezzar sets forth a proclamation and it has something to do with God, the true God, the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, the one true and living God, the holy God. Many wonderful things are said. He's the God of the um, heavens. He's the most exalted God. He is the God who is sovereign. He does what he wants. In this instance, he'll illustrate how the Lord will humble a proud person. And he tells us quite a bit about the Lord. But he still remains a polygamist. He still remains one that will make a blend between true religion and idolatry. He is still one that will pursue his own pleasure, his own means. And so it's a big debate. It's interesting. Some of the best people you can imagine are on one side or the other as to whether Nebuchadnezzar actually made a profession of faith where he actually came to know the Lord. And um, one of the things that sort of tell us 
something about that is in the portion of the text we didn't read. Uh, after this dream came about, and it was a frightening dream, and it was a tree. And the tree grew to be a mighty tree and extended out as far as you could imagine and it went up to the heavens. And it was a tree that was fruitful. And it was a tree that had the beast of the field under it and the fowls of the air in it. Uh, this is a picture in the ancient world of a kingdom. The Assyrian uh, kingdom was pictured as a cedar tree. The kingdom of Xerxes later on was pictured as a, a tree. Uh, Cyprus... I mean, Cyrus, the king, his, his kingdom was pictured as a vine, a thick vine. And even King David, his kingdom is pictured as a tree. Remember? There's a picture in the Old Testament where the tree comes up and it comes out of the stump of Jesse. It's David's father. And then at some point, the tree is cut down. So we now have the stump of Jesse with a little single shoot coming up. A little branch. Just a little sprout. And that sprout, that branch is Jesus. And out of that grows a whole new tree trunk which is a whole new people of God. So even King David. So this picture of a tree. The horrifying thing in the dream was as it continued that the, uh, th this was a moving picture. It wasn't just a static picture like a great image. This was a, a little bit of drama. And the drama was that the watchers or the angelic um, uh, authorities came and said, take the tree down. I like the way it talks about it. It said, said hew it down. Uh, cut it up. Take the root and leave it with the stump put some barrier around it, iron and bronze barrier. But as far as the tree trunk is concerned, cut it up, take off the leaves, mutilate it. The animals will scatter, the birds will fly away, and the tree will be destroyed. You'll never see the tree again. And that part of the dream was troubling. And when Daniel was called in, and that's the part of the passage that we didn't read uh, there in the middle part of the uh, chapter, Daniel was called in to do what he had done before, and that was to interpret the dream for the king. First, he called in the Chaldeans like he always did. He had to, had to go to his uh, paid staff first, and then he'd bring in an outside consultant. And uh, he, he, he had them uh, try to do the dream. They couldn't get close, didn't even, didn't even really try. Daniel came in and proceeded to interpret the dream. The scripture says, though, that Daniel was shocked. His thoughts alarmed him. And he could not do anything for about an hour. That's how shocked David was. I mean, uh, Daniel was as he began to try to understand the dream. And the thing he had to say to the king, he had to muster up his courage, is Nebuchadnezzar, this this dream is not favorable to you. It'd be better if this dream had to do with your enemies. But no, this dream has to do with you. And it is simply the story, the prediction of how God, the sovereign God, the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the living God, the God of all of heaven and earth, the creator God, supreme, is going to deal 
with Nebuchadnezzar personally. As a couple of things that you'll see is that he, he enjoys his status. He said, I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace when I saw the dream. This dream was not a result of any kind of trauma in his life. In fact, things were going pretty well for him in every way. He was at ease. He was self-satisfied. And this dream of this tree and the destruction of the tree comes up. And then in verse 19, Daniel is stunned and asked permission from the king to tell him what the dream is. Now he wants to make sure the king consents to what he's about to say. And then after he reveals the dream, this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord. He says, you will be driven from among men. Your dwelling will be with the beast of the field. And so he pictures how uh, something's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar right here in the prime of his life, at the peak of his kingdom. He's going to somehow lose his mind. He's going to lose his reason. He's going to somehow go insane of some sort. Uh, there are a couple of names for this kind of insanity that are, that, are, that are listed, but it's when a person imagines themselves to be a particular beast. And the implication here that he's an ox. And so he thinks like an ox, he behaves like an ox, and he goes through this period of ridiculous insanity. And it's brought upon him directly by the Lord in order to humble him. Now, I don't know if it's a disease or not, but I remember when my oldest grandson was about three, uh, he one day was a frog. And when he came up, he, after he finished his little morning uh, rituals, he had on a solid green. Every green garment he owned, he had on solid green. And he hopped around all day long. He never said a word except just croaking. And he lived his whole day as a frog and did a pretty good job, but he was kind of disturbing a little bit. But he was playing and he never did it again. And I don't know that he ever imitated another animal. But for one day, Max was a frog. Well, this is the real deal. This is, this is crazy. The first time I heard this, I can't believe it. He, he lived like an ox. He was cast out from among men, so he was taken from his royal court. And I'm sure the, the, the uh, bureaucracy was able to continue function. He mentioned his counselors returning to him. In other words, they probably have been carrying on the business. We don't know how long this lasted. It said it lasted for seven times. Well, some said, what, seven days? They said, no, they didn't have time for his fingernails to grow out. Well, it was seven weeks, seven months, seven years. Seven years is a good time. You know, a lot of things happen in seven years. But... Most commentators sort of back off and say, we can't be for sure, but it had to be long enough to make an impression on everybody around. But it was a short enough time that it, would, that it made the point and he was able to recover. And the seven times mean it was the time of complete. Whatever time God needed to deal with Nebuchadnezzar in this way, he did. And it was extremely humiliating. He lived in the wild. He was wet by the dew of heaven. He... Uh, was unkempt, as uh, the text said here. In fact, there's a couple of places in describing it. His, his hair was like long eagle feathers, grotesque. His fingernails were like the claws of a bird. Um, this, is, this is the most splendid human being in human history to that point. And here he is brought low like that. And so uh, when the message came to him from Daniel, to me, this is the most important part of the passage. There's a lot of good things in the passage, but verse 27, 
Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Daniel is asking for an audience. Daniel's a prophet, but he's, but he's not prophesying to God's people like the other prophets did in Israel. He's speaking to this powerful pagan king and he's telling him about what is about to happen. And listen to what Daniel says. And I just, we have great admiration for Daniel anyway as a man of courage and conviction and, uh, but, um, and great wisdom. But this is the most profound thing. Right in front of the king, he implores the king to repentance. There's not very many preachers I know in that situation would preach straight to the king. And this is what he says here in, in short order. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. The two aspects of the ministry and the, I mean, the uh, kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar was he was extremely successful, he was extremely powerful, and he was arbitrary. Uh, he, his kingdom was not established on righteousness, a principle, a principle outside of himself, a divine principle or anything standard of righteousness, certainly not the law of God. His kingdom was based upon his caprice his own self, his self-will. He had no one to stop him. And he could do whatever. Remember what he did so far. He ordered his own uh, Chaldeans to be murdered limb from limb if he, they didn't give him the thing. He cast the uh, three Hebrew children into the fiery furnace who were good, faithful men, but he threw them in there. He's capricious. No standard of righteousness. He was a relativist. Whatever he felt like fit the circumstance it was best for himself or his kingdom or whatever of the day, that was his edict. He needed to repent of that. He needed to break off by practicing, break off from that sin by practicing righteousness. The righteous standards of God. He gave lots of doxology to God, lots of praise to God, but he never wanted to obey God's will. He never wanted to do God's bidding. He never came humbly before God and said he was a servant of the Lord. Instead, he recognized the great power and the deity of God in a lot of ways, but he never, ever did yield his own will, his own self, wholly to the Lord. And this was now the time for him to do it. He had received this awful dream and this prediction, but nothing had happened yet. And Daniel pleads with him to break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. In addition to being capricious, lawless, and unrighteous, Nebuchadnezzar's reign was characterized by awful cruelty. It was a rapacious reign. It was a reign of plunder. It was a reign of theft, and it was especially a reign of downtrodding the weak people. Not only the weak people of the Babylonian culture immediately, but those that were in the, from the frontiers of the empire. He was horribly oppressive. And so Daniel calls him to repentance. To remember the two great things that make up good government. 
That is, on the one hand, righteousness, right standards, justice, correct law, law that corresponds to reality and law that corresponds to the revealed will of God. One of the great promises of the coming kingdom of Christ is he will reign in righteousness. And the other is mercy. There has to be an eleemosynary motive in the heart of the king. There's benevolence has to be. Otherwise, he's not a good king. The good king loves his people. The shepherd loves the sheep. And he wasn't even close. So he was called to do that. In fact, in the very last statement that what I read, Nebuchadnezzar said in his final proclamation, I praise, extol, and honor the king of heaven for his works are right. What God does is just, right, righteous, and his ways are just. And then I said the final statement, and those that walk in pride, he is able to humble. He had learned that lesson. The Lord had brought him low, had brought him down, had completely brought it to him. And it happened at a time when, uh, it's interesting, about a year passed from the time he was told the dream and urged to repent. It's interesting, the Lord didn't just zap him right there at that moment. He gave him some time. The Lord is long-suffering. Gave him a solid year to assess his situation. And a sober assessment of your life might take 15 seconds if you're thinking clearly, if you're not so clouded with pride and stubbornness, if you're not so consumed with yourself, when the light of the convicting power of God comes into the life, but he let it go. And he ended up saying, is this not the great Babylon which I've built by my mighty power and a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? He was reveling in his splendor, in his power, in his accomplishments more than ever. He had reached the peak of his pride following the dream, following the prophet's urge to repent. David, I mean, I want to keep saying David. Daniel had said here that uh, uh, if he will break off your sins and your iniquities, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Was, Daniel gave him the possibility you repent, just like in the days of Hezekiah, to some extent Ahab, other ancient kings repented and God relented and allowed some time for them to prosper, to live longer or to do some other things. Perhaps that would be true of Nebuchadnezzar and a whole year went by and he's really enjoying it. Now he had a lot to appreciate and I, I put this in here because we kind of vaguely know these things, but <clears throat> Babylon was the most unbelievable city of the ancient world. And it was built and built and rebuilt and built again and remodeled over and over for centuries there in the, in the days before what we think of as the antiquities, the days of the immediate centuries before Christ. In the days of Nebuchadnezzar, this much we know, he had built two massive temples there in the area to his God, the God of Babylon. He had built probably 12 to 15 other temples to other gods in the region. Magnificent temples. He had built two massive walls that went down to the river and came up and framed and fortified the city along with a great rampart that protected the city. He had built 
palaces, including the one he's in here, the, royal, the mighty power of a royal residence and the glory of my majesty. And you've heard of the hanging gardens? This was a building project commenced during his days. Now there's about 40 something more years of Babylonian splendor after Nebuchadnezzar and before Belshazzar. And there was even more building going on there. And it was just an incredible operation. But Nebuchadnezzar had built it up to that moment. He was quite proud of it. And then it went, when he was thinking these thoughts, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. And all of this malady, this ridiculous experience came upon him and brought him completely to his knees. The interesting thing is though, it brought him also to his senses because the Bible says he looked up he lifted his eyes to heaven. And when he did that, his reason returned. Isn't God merciful that he would implore a king as to what to do? And then when the king failed and the Lord dropped his hand of judgment, he stayed, he's long-suffering, and then he restored even. And he restored him back to his original splendor. And he even says here in the end of it that his, uh, his kingdom... Uh, more greatness was added to me. King Nebuchadnezzar, the Lord resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And this ordeal that he went through, which is a bizarre ordeal, was God's way of working sovereignly and individually and directly with this one person. I wonder if you've been able in your life to discern, it's not easy to do, to discern God working in your life when you have times and moments when the correcting, convicting power of the Spirit of God comes upon you and something in your life causes you to be arrested before the Spirit of God and come to your senses and see yourself as God sees you. And you know, the Bible says, even in the New Testament, right in the middle of some of the best gospel preaching you'll ever hear, it says the goodness of the Lord leads us to repentance. All that opulent splendor and pleasure and, and, uh, and that, that uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar enjoyed, that was God enabling him to see and understand his goodness and would lead him to repentance. When the goodness of the Lord doesn't lead us to repentance, sometimes it's the severe chastening of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Either way, repentance is a gift. It's a grant. It's something the Lord moves us to, enables us to do, and then conveys upon us the forgiveness, the pardon that goes with it. There's so much gospel truth here that's working, but what you have basically is the the, the king who is uh, represented in, the, in this text and in, in this section of scripture as the supreme king of the face of the earth, the king of the kings. And yet he's the king of the kingdom of humanity, the kingdom of man. He had to be humbled. He had to be dealt with. God was able to do it. God did it. God took care of him. 
And by the way, I will suggest to you that God will take care of every king that is raised up in our midst for our entire lifetimes. He will deal with those in authority. He raises them up. He brings them down. Every petty potentate, every imbecile leader of any nation, large or small, God will deal with them and those that enable them and those that are around them. And we've got to have confidence in that. We need to get that confidence really sealed in our soul because we may be facing some of that in the near future. God humbles. He's able to humble. He's able to bring down. Think of another king. A king that humbled himself. A king who contemplated the situation. And we're called upon to have the same mind, the same contemplation to be in us. Who even though this king existed as divine, full deity with the Father and the Spirit, full being and fellowship, fully divine, yet not incarnate, divine glory, all the attributes of the Godhead, full majesty, splendor, power, might, exalted, this full status of God with God as very God and with God, all of this majesty that would, that would make Babylon look pathetic and pale. This king didn't think all of that was something to be grasped. But instead, he emptied himself. Not that he emptied himself of all of his divinity, not at all. But he emptied himself of all of that majesty and splendor and the, the full manifestation of his deity, the exercise of his prerogatives, all of his powers of deity. There was a setting aside of the full operation of those. And he became a servant. He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom. And he made in the likeness of men this king became fully human, taking on full humanity. Human being through and through. And full humanity, along with full humility. He made himself of no reputation. He didn't try to take on anything. He came as lowly as a man can come. He took on all the attributes of humanity, but not just a man, but a lowly man. Not just a lowly man, a suffering man. He suffered in his life from the manger to the cross. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. What a contrast to Nebuchadnezzar. And he became obedient even to the death, the death of the cross. This was a suffering death, a humiliating death, an ignominious death, a painful death, torturous death, but it was a, an atoning death. It was a redeeming death. It was a death that yielded up the life of the flesh which was in the blood, and that blood itself was exactly what God demanded to purge the sins of mankind. 
And in Christ, this death was died. He humbled himself. But God highly exalted him. And the exaltation is a a triple exaltation. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He was enthroned upon an eternal throne and kingdom. Far higher and far better than anything Nebuchadnezzar could possibly imagine or any king since. The Lord put him there and gave him a name which is above every name. That is the name of Jesus. Word means Savior. Ruler, he is. Because everyone will bow the knee and the tongue will confess. Not just believers. Everyone. Isaiah 45 tells us that that's the extent and the power and the dominion of this king. He has all the power over everyone. Everyone in this room will bow the knee and your tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. If Savior, Jesus means Savior, then Lord means sovereign ruler. Not every tongue will confess that Jesus is their Savior, sadly. But every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Make no mistake about it, our King is the one King, the true King, the real King. One of the things this passage points out to us in the book of Daniel is a stark contrast between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. And it it tells us how the kingdom of man is going to eventually fall and falter and transition on out of here. And how in the midst of all this historical development, the King, the true King, Christ the Lord, will come in the midst of that in the final kingdom and will then begin to reign and to set up His reign, which will last for all eternity. Father, we thank You for this King. We ask You to turn our hearts toward Him. Help us, Father, to break away from our sins and to move toward Him in love, in humility, in reverence, in service, in obedience. Renew us, Father. Call us back from our straying. Lift us up from our falling. Dry the tears from our hurting and our despair and our grief. And heal our wounds. Hear our prayers. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's extol the Lord by singing that hymn that's in your bulletin there.